Hey, everybody, this is Chris Willard, and I'm really excited to have you joining us for this uh, podcast today. Our guest today is Grant Skeldon, and I'm super excited about an opportunity to talk with Grant. I'm, I'm excited about this podcast uh, series because over the course of these, I guess it's six podcasts, we're going to be talking about what does it take to elevate generosity and stewardship and giving in your church. And um, our company, Elevate Group, is a company that is dedicated to helping churches and ministries figure out how to do that. We, we call ourselves Elevate Group because we use a team approach to call church leaders uh, and they're, to have church leaders call their people up to a higher level of engagement. And we know that that tends to result in a greater amount of resources to, to do the ministry. So we're excited about that. Today, super excited to talk to my friend, Grant Skeldon. Grant, how are you, buddy? Great to see you. Good. Good seeing you, Chris. Thanks so much. Grant and I have worked together, I guess, you know, we we worked together at Leadership Network for a little while, and we've mm-hmm been connected over the years through um, Exponential, but now Grant is serving as the next-gen director for Q Ideas. Maybe tell us a little bit, uh, Grant, about what that role is, what it is that you guys are working on, just some of the things that you're up to there. Yeah, so historically, um, I've really done two things. I've done a lot of education towards older generations, specifically uh, on the next generation, uh, specifically pastors that are trying to reach young people, uh, parents that are trying to raise young people and business leaders that are trying to retain young people. Uh, so that'd be half of what I do. So a lot of traveling, a lot of speaking workshops, some consulting. And then the other half, uh, which I mean, they, I like both of them in different ways, but I really do enjoy, especially in light of so much young people leaving the church today is uh, I've for years have been kind of trying to find and unite and accelerate um, some of the most diverse dynamic young Christian leaders across the country. And so mostly doing kind of retreats for young leaders, uh, some international trips, but just three, four day experiences where I get to bring all these young leaders that are, some of them are professional Olympic athletes, some of them are pastors, some of them nonprofit leaders, speakers, authors, musicians, online influencers, basically anyone who's in their 20s, especially who has a national platform um, and is running hard after Jesus, then um, I just want to give them community. I don't want them to be lonely. I don't want them to feel like they always have to have a cape on because most of their generation um, has left the church. Um, and I want them to have a place where they could get poured into instead of always uh, feeling like they have to pour out. Cause I feel like burnout is getting earlier and earlier for uh, this generation. And so uh, all that to say how that transitioned into Q ideas with Gabe Lyons, Rebecca Lyons is that uh, I, they also have a heart for preparing the next generation for uh, what's on the horizon and where our culture is going. And so as I'm uniting these leaders and accelerating the work that God's doing through them, um, it was just a very easy partnership to uh, get them plugged into the content and the mentorship and the leaders and the conversations that Q's doing to prepare them for the future, as well as behind the scene, Q does do a lot of retreats uh, privately for um, a lot of the speakers of Q. Um, and so uh, it created a great place for me to introduce my young leaders to uh, a lot of the men potential mental leaders um, that have been involved for with Q for about 15 plus years now. That's very cool. Do you have, do you have one of those retreats coming up? Is it, in, you have something in the calendar? It's been such a weird 2020. Yeah. So crazy. Were you able to do any last year? Yeah, we did. Yeah. We, uh, I, we did definitely shift towards uh, leveraging the people of God's private property. And so these are very generous people that have uh, large homes uh, or second homes 
uh, that, yeah, just they have their own land, their own space, and uh, those who are willing uh, to gather in, in a wise way, uh, we would do small retreats for like 25 to 40 uh, leaders. The next one we'll be doing in a few weeks in Branson, Missouri, uh, sure. in off the Table Rock Lake in a very beautiful lake house. And it'll actually be our first Gen Z retreat. And so these are all leaders, 25 and younger. So I'm the old guy uh, as a part of this group. That's awesome. Uh, it really is cool, man. I, I'm I'm very excited about Gen Z, their heart for the gospel, their heart for Jesus, just getting back to the basics. Um, I often say, I think that Xers and boomers try to make church comfortable in light of the seeker sensitive movement and in light of trying to reach people that were hurt by church or um, the church. Uh, but as, as they went towards comfortable, uh, we, I think my generation went towards cause, but also the mm-hmm. downside is we also went towards cool is how can we make Jesus and church and us as Christians cool enough to influence uh, the world. But as we all know, and it's only accelerated so much in the last five to 10 years, uh, you just, there's certain parts of Jesus that just isn't cool. It's actually, it's offensive. Um, and the more, more the culture gets away from Jesus, the church and the things of God, uh, the more you know, it won't be cool. You'll literally, be the op- if you want to be cool, uh, then cancel culture is a scary thing to you. But if you want to just give people Jesus, um, which I'm seeing in Gen Z. Uh, they're just really focusing mm-hmm. on Christ. Uh, and they're growing up in the most lost generation this nation has ever seen. And so I, I mean, Chris, I'm really serious. It's like, I think these guys that I'm meeting, the mature ones, they are like old school, Charles Spurgeon, Leonard Ravenhill, mm-hmm. George Mueller. They're old souls that don't care about the approval of the world or even the approval of other Christians. Uh, they just want to please Jesus. And they want as many people in their generation to know Christ. So I've gotten betting all in. How can I open doors? and um, resource these up-and-coming young leaders in Gen Z. That is very cool. I know that people can find out more about you and what you do, right? Is the best place to reach out to you through your website, uh, grantskeldon.com, or yeah, is your email yeah. address? Is that the best place to do it? Yeah, for me, grantskeldon.com, uh, just my full name.com. Uh, social media is all Grant Skeldon as well. And then anything on Q ideas in the conference and all that kind of stuff is through qideas.org. Okay, cool. Well, bro, I want to talk for a, a couple of minutes. I want to ask you a question about the the statement that you make in your book, The Passion Generation. Well, it's more than a statement. You talk about it constantly in the book, about the way, the way in which the next generation, millennials in this case, but I'm sure that Gen Z is going to be the same way. They're disruptors, right? They just they've yeah. disrupted, they disrupt the marketplace, they're disrupting business, they're disrupting kind of culture, and they're also disruptive in the church, right? So mm-hmm. describe that. What's going on there? And why do you think it's important for us to pay attention to that? Yeah, uh, I think I think every, uh, even in my uh, description of what I do, I mean, pastors are trying to reach the next generation because seven out of 10, at least millennials, were leaving the church once entering into college. Uh, parents are trying to raise the next generation because, I mean, by and large, many young people uh, one of the biggest concerns is do we want this next generation to know Jesus. Um, and that's been problematic. The second would be even those that know Jesus or don't, uh, a lot of millennials have failed to launch in a lot of ways. And so they, they are job hopping. They are, uh, just don't even know, they went to college and just came back home and lived with their parents. And like 25, I think plus million, uh, millennials did that, uh, where they got a degree. Uh, and then and then the third, I would say, uh, a lot of, Marketplace leaders seem to be the most frustrated with the next generation because they have to, on a day-to-day basis, 
work with them and try to lead them. And uh, it's just not a generation that chooses one to two jobs that they stick with for the next couple of decades, like they saw our parents or especially our grandparents do. Uh, the average trajectory for a millennial, at least uh, by the age of 40, is to have about 14 different jobs. And so um, it can be very infuriating if you are constantly hiring, training, when within a year losing uh, this person that you just invested in. And so, um, yeah, I just think a lot of uh, disruption has happened. I mean, that's just the, that's just for parents, church leaders, and, and marketplace leaders. Um, and then colleges, I think, are struggling right now. I mean, especially in COVID, just continuing to struggle to get more and more recruits. You know, I, I will say, maybe I, sh- I should have said this at the end of the podcast, because it's never good to reveal my cards in this area until it's, I sound smart and then I can tell this. But I have successfully dropped out of college three times now. And um, the last time it was a full ride that I was given. And I still was like, man, I just, I'm struggling to, to do this when I'm just learning stuff that doesn't have anything to do with my life. Um, and I felt like I was very rebellious when I did that about eight years ago um, in my early 20s. But I'm seeing in Gen Z a lot more just confidently could care less that they dropped out. I used to be like, dang, I'm dropping out. Everyone's saying I should. I better. My neck is on the line. And yeah. I'm meeting tons of young leaders in Gen Z. They're like, oh, that's yeah, we don't even care anymore. Like it's so not even a pressure as much as it used to be. Uh, so I'm sure colleges are in seminaries. Oh, my God. Seminaries are struggling. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's a, it's a very disruptive generation. Lastly, I'll just say the American dream. Uh I think that's a core of what a lot of this is, is uh, the American dream that was for boomers and Xers just is a very different American dream uh, for millennials. And I would say the same for Gen Z. And so uh, when they, when the, when the end goal is not the same, the route is just going to look different because they're not trying to end up where the generation before is trying to end up. They're not trying to get there as fast as you got there. They might not even want to get to where your thought was the end goal. And so, I think that's where we should be looking at, like begin with the end in mind uh, and then look at, okay, yeah, all these other things are byproducts of just a different end goal, in my opinion. Uh, hey, we're talking with Grant Skeldon. If you just joined us, we're talking with Grant Skeldon. He is the next gen director for Q Ideas and wrote a fantastic book, came out probably in 2018. Is that about right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, called The Passion Generation. I, I'd like to, let's talk a little bit more about that thing you just said. I know what, when you say the phrase American, the American dream, I think I know what that means for my generation, for me, but what, what's the difference between perhaps the way I might view the American dream and perhaps uh, a millennial or a Gen Z might, might view it? Yeah. uh, A core thing. I'll just talk about uh, even why you go to college and what you want to achieve in college is historically, it's like you knew what you wanted to do with your life. You went to college to uh, legitimize and get educated in that arena so that you can get out of college and quickly after get a job. Um, now college, and then, I mean, I'll just continue to go. And and you usually chose to get a degree in a job that was going to make good money. I mean, there's certain jobs like being a doctor, a lawyer, architect. Um, yeah, we kind of all know jobs that just make good money. Uh you would go down that lane. And if you could stay faithful for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, even starting from the bottom, continuing to move up, uh, you could really achieve something special and um, have that, yeah, get the house you 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 never thought you could even have, like the, the boat, the you know, even second home, put your kids through college. 
and all the way, like I, I would say the American dream historically, especially for boomers, um, was motivated by provision, um, providing a better life for your family than you were given as a kid um, mm-hmm. so that they could provide a better life for their family than they were given as a kid. And I think provision is, is a necessary thing you have to consider. I just think that for the younger generations, provision isn't the main motivator for their life. Um, they're not just thinking, how do we provide a better life? Uh, they're, I think they're more, way more concerned uh, in the long run and in the end goal with their passion and their purpose than just provision. And so that's why I called the book Passion Generation was uh, everyone sees that. Everyone knows that. I mean, statistically, Business Journal found that 52%, so just barely over half of young people would t- said that they would take a drastic pay cut was the exact wording was, would you take a drastic pay cut in your job in order to have a meaningful uh, passion-filled position in your job. And so it's like, they, they clearly don't and aren't motivated by money as much as uh, generations before. And so that plus, I want to say like, so the motivation and the end goal is different. Plus the system that did work, even if I think we were pursuing provision, it doesn't work like it used to. For example, college is no longer something where you know what you want to do. And then you go to it to accelerate that and get legitimized in it. Now college is like, an experience. It's this, you're going to college to find out who you are and you're going to college to figure out what you want to do. If I was a parent, I would never let my kid personally go to college. Like I, I would, I'm talking to parents and saying, I don't think you should let your kid go to college so they know what they want to do and put that pressure on them. Like I had a mentor once tell me deadlines drive decisions. Uh, mm. I, I think those deadlines are crucial. Like I have a deadline. You can't move back home after college. That's a just this deadline of 18 is very important. So don't think you're going to just party in their 20 somethings. Or if you're in college, after college, you got to find a place to live. You can, we'll, we'll cover some of this for dorms and stuff. But those deadlines, if you if you are loose on those deadlines, they will take advantage. Um, that, I mean, why? If you're saying you'll pay for me and or, or I could get a job, I'd rather you pay for me. Like, I don't think it's not even a lazy thing. I just rather people will bend to whatever like low bar you give them i think by and large by and large and so uh college is not the same experience it it's now truly is just that and then lastly this is really important is that college doesn't separate uh someone as much as it used to a bachelor's degree um just doesn't i often say that uh it's such a shame that uh a degree the only guarantee that colleges have these days is putting your kid in debt more than getting them a job um, I, I've found, and I think Gen Z especially has seen far too many millennials uh, get majors in something that they don't even remotely have a job in. Like they majored in something and then they got a job somewhere completely else, uh, somewhere else. And so uh, I think they're just kind of seeing where things are going. And so lastly, I'll just say, if you're familiar with the halftime book and that halftime experience of moving from success to significance midway through your life and through a midlife crisis, if you will, uh, the great thing about that book is I think that great experience that God reveals to revealed to a generation midway through their life, uh, instead of having a midlife crisis, uh, millennials and Gen Z are having a quarter life crisis. Right on. And so they're considering six, uh, significance more than success earlier. And so before they choose their major, before they choose their job, before they dedicate 10, 20, 30 years to that job. And so it's crucial that we disciple them. Um, and not, not allow the world to disciple them and what the end goal should be and what their motivation should be. It's crucial that we, we let the kingdom bleed into that mission and that end goal. Um, cause I'm not saying that young people have the right answer. I'm just saying 
they they want something more than money and and i think that's that's a good thing but yeah they definitely need some wisdom and guidance and uh shepherding yeah i love that connection too between the the american dream perhaps for my generation was more about provision and for the next generation it's about passion and we you i think you really just answered we got a question somebody put in the chat the question is if the next generation is not involved as much in institutionalized education, what's the best way to ensure that we're still equipping them with everything that they need to succeed? And I'm going to take a risk, uh, Grant, and suggest that I think I know what your answer is to that. Yeah. Right? right? Isn't the answer discipleship? Isn't the answer that we need to disciple these students in the context of the church and, and outside the church? And that's where they're going to get the equipping that they need to live a life that's successful? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I the, the crux of the book that I wrote is that we don't have a next generation problem. We have a discipleship problem. And uh, I think that if I was raising a kid that was in high school and had to start considering college, I would very highly encourage them. One, maybe it's totally fine with me for you to take one year off and personally go like, I personally would probably try to put them in another country, honestly, like, Mm-hmm. Just go and see what the world looks like in other places. I want you to see what God's doing in another country. It's too often have I seen some of the most mature young Christian leaders I know uh, have some of these like global experiences where they get to see the people of God in other places. Um, I think it's also a great wake up call to what really matters. Because when you go to another country and you see nobody cares about like your clothes and nobody cares about what you thought was so cool in your little small part of town, um, even though you think it's such a big deal. In this part of the world, nobody cares at all. And so you start wondering what does really matter in life, uh, especially if you can be with a, a mission-driven, uh, God-glorifying organization that really uh, challenges you and, and makes sure you realize like you're not the point, like this story is not about you, but you get to be a cool part of an unbelievable story. Uh, I think that's, I'd be so open for that kind of global experience because I think right after high school, uh, even if you could graduate high school a little early and go do something like that, it's crucial because uh, it's like the best time where you can like waste a little time, but it's not a waste. And then second, I would say, I would figure out like, yeah, what I'm going to really guide them through discipleship and figuring out what do you want to do? Like, I'm going to not just ask questions about provision. I'm going to ask questions about their purpose and activate them thinking about them, ask questions about uh, their passion and help activate that. And I think of first Timothy four twelve, um, it says right after the whole, like, don't let anyone look down because you're young, two verses down, it says, and do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by the prophecy and the council of elders. Uh, I think that's a crucial verse. We often make that like the next gen verse, but I think it's the multi-generational verse. That's the multi-generational churches. It's saying, don't neglect this gift you have, which you were actually given when older people saw it in you and prophesied over it and counseled you in it. And I think uh, where we mess up in the church today is you got a lot of young people that are dying to figure out who they are and what their gift is and change the world, but they don't know. And they don't have older people around them that are saying, Hey, I see this in you. Hey, I, I, I noticed something about your character or your gifting. And I think you could truly use that for God's glory. Um, the, every many leaders I know old or young have a couple moments where someone older than them saw something in them when they were young as a biblical thing. Um, and so yeah, that would be big. And lastly, very practical. I would say, if I had a young person, I would say, once you know what you want to do, if you have to go to school for it, like you have to go to school to be a doctor or an architect, you got to go to school. That's just God's called you to do that. Let's figure out how you go to school. But if you, 
if you want to, let's say, be a videographer or you want to be a speaker or you want to do anything that you don't exactly for sure have to go to school for, uh, especially anything around tech, because that changes so quickly that schools are almost always going to be behind um, in it, then I would say, let's find someone who is some one of the best at it, ideally a believer. And I will, I will pay for you to like live near there and be able to volunteer for free, hopefully in a year or two to get a job. You got to give everything. And I'll, I'd give half the money so you can just be near them and have the availability to just go follow and be around those people, then go to school for it personally. That's, I just, I think that's a better education than going yeah, to school in some arenas. Yeah. It's an apprentice, the apprenticeship, concept, right? I mean, that's for generations. That's how people learned their trade. That's how people learned how to make a living. Somebody said, or saw that you might have an aptitude for this and let's get you around somebody who's really great at it and they'll teach you how to do it. So, yeah, yeah, that's good. You know, it occurs to me, Grant, as I talk to you that I, you know, I'm 57, I guess, 57 years old, but I was discipled as a college student through, through, what is what was then called Campus Crusade for Christ is now called Crew, and yeah. I think my view. I I I really believe you. I think my view of the American dream as a 19 year old, let's say, was dramatically impacted by the fact that there were older brothers in my life who were inviting me to think about bigger things than just what about getting a great job and having a great life. And I mean, I'm 19 years old, and I'm thinking we got to yeah. fulfill the great commission, you know, like we got to get out there and, and share the gospel with the yeah. whole world. And, and my friends that were sort of in that same place with me, I mean, many of us are still really close friends today and still very engaged yeah. in ministry today. And I think it has to go back to the fact that somebody, somebody discipled us and made an effort to sort of pour that in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, tell me, is there a story that comes to mind where you're like, uh, as you've probably heard many times, people say discipleship is caught more than it's taught. Uh, it's like those experiences where they didn't say it wasn't like a message that you heard, but was there something that someone did that discipled you, mentored you, and you said, hey, I want to I want to be able to do something like that? Well, yeah. So I'm sort of an upfront guy. Like I like to MC stuff and I like to speak and all that. And apparently that must have been that's sort of there's a there's natural gifting that you just have. Right. And then spiritual yeah. gifting. But I can remember these guys at Campus Crusade just saying, yeah, yeah, we're going to make you the MC. You're going you're to be the MC at the weekly meeting. I'm like, I don't know how to do that. How, does, how do you do that? Well, I'm going to meet with you here and you're going to watch me do what I do. And then next week you're going to do it. And yeah. it was like, um, that was just so fun for me because I, yeah. I was just thrown in the deep end on numerous occasions in that discipleship process. But, you know, what's the worst that can happen? I fail or I screw up. But meanwhile, this guy was believing in me. He was trusting me to, to learn how to do it. And those things marked me as a young guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm thankful for it. And I know, I, I, think you're, I think you're so right that the issue is not that we have a problem with millennials or next gen, but we have a problem in, in the church with regard to discipleship. And I think, frankly, any problem you can identify in the church is a discipleship problem, right? Like if you got, yeah. you got problems with people that they're not walking with the Lord, that's discipleship. If they've got financial problems, I think that's related to discipleship. If there's relationship issues, it's discipleship. So what can you tell us about 
how do how, how should we be thinking then about discipleship of this next generation in our churches? What are some things to keep in mind? Maybe some things we should start doing or stop doing. Just any yeah. thoughts there? Uh, I would just say we have to one normalize it and stop acting like it's a weird thing to do. Or yeah. actually, I I usually feel like it's either treated like it's weird. Um, or like it's a luxury. Those would probably be the top two. Mm. When I say weird, I remember speaking on discipleship to a whole bunch of CEOs and they were like, look, we get it. We get it. You want us to pour into young people. Uh, but he's like, so what do you think? He's like, you think I'm supposed to just like, this is a Q and a time. And he's like, you think I'm supposed to just go up to some young guy at my church and just go up to him and say, Hey man, you should start following me around and I, uh, I'll start discipling you. And all the other CEOs laughed like it was such a weird scenario if you would just go up to a young person and say, hey, follow me. And I was kind of like, bro, you know, it's kind of funny. I get that you think it's funny. But I was like, you know, it's funny is that's what Jesus did. <laughs> He's like, that's crazy. It's like you're laughing at something that is what our, our like the father of our faith did. Not just once, like several times. That's literally what he did. Um, and, and I'm not saying you have to go up to strangers. You're not Jesus. But I'm thinking there's somebody you somewhat know that you could see some promise in um, like a diamond in the rough that you feel like, Hey, you know, I don't, I, I had someone hope probably I bet that was poured into me and opened doors for me and believed in me when I was younger. And I just want to take you under my wing. You don't have to use the word discipleship because again, sometimes it's weird. It's scary for them mm-hmm. to say, okay, let's start meeting or I just want to invite you into my world a little bit, whatever feels good for you. I really don't care about using the word discipleship, but it, it is in my opinion. Uh, so that's either weird or it's a luxury. And that's where it's like, so Barna found that 17% of Christians have uh, what the wording was, uh, have committed to a relationship with someone younger in the faith to pour into them. And so only 17% of Christians do that. So uh, we kind of view what I found often, if we don't view it as weird, we, and we want to do it, we view it as this thing that uh, that's only what the elite leaders do for other leaders. It's not what Christians do. But when Jesus did it, he was talking to everyone. Like he was talking to us as children of God. Um, and it's not even like we don't see it all over the Old Testament as well. Uh, so, and it's what we see the disciples do with the 72. It's like we, they keep making disciples. And so um, practically, I always say some very high overview tips would be uh, discipleship can be as simple as just including someone in your world. It doesn't have to be a weekly meeting. It doesn't uh, have to be adding one more thing to your calendar. Uh, I would actually differentiate mentorship is meeting with someone. It would be if Jesus said, come and meet with me. Discipleship is following someone, which is Jesus didn't say, come and meet with me. Um, He said, come and follow me. Uh, Too often in the church, we say, don't even come and meet with me or come and follow me. We just say, come and listen to me next week. We got this brand new series and we're really good at doing the come and listen to me in large crowds. Uh, But Jesus focused way more on discipleship than the 5,000. In fact, he left the 5,000 for 12. That should be a sign to us what's a little more important. And so I want to um, make sure that you, I want to say, have you say a little bit more about that. Cause I think this is such an important point. And by the way, if you're just joining us, we're talking to Grant Skeldon and Grant's with Q ideas. He's the next gen director with Q ideas. This is a huge difference, right? This difference between meet with me and follow me. Like mm-hmm. that's like a, that that's an aha Cause I'm busy. So if somebody said I add something else to my schedule, I think, uh, that's painful, yeah. but that's not what you're talking about. Right? No, no. And, and, and I want to legitimize like the two excuses I hear for why people don't disciple is usually one, I'm too busy or two, I don't feel qualified to do it. Uh, and, 
and too busy actually i think is the irony of it is for discipleship that means you got so much you can invite people into um it means you're perfect for discipleship because oh, good. Yeah. too busy yeah it means now I, and that's why i think again it's important to differentiate mentorship is come meet with me you might be too busy to mentor someone because that is adding one more thing to your calendar weekly monthly something like that but you're not too busy for discipleship because discipleship isn't saying, Hey, come and meet with me. It's come and follow me. And so, and this is crucial. That means that you got to find a young person who, who, who moves their life and their calendar and their time, their location around you. Uh, that's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't move his life and orient his life around the disciples and where they were going. The disciples did that around Jesus. And the great thing is young people have time. Like they, I'm, I just got married five months ago and I lost one of the greatest things. It was the true gift of singleness. And it's time is I, I was past the point where I have to ask my parents for permission. And I was not yet at the point I just hit where I have to now ask my wife for permission. I could just go and do things. I could buy what I wanted to buy. I could go where I wanted to go. I could say yes immediately. If someone asked me, I was like, yes, that's what I want to do. But now I'm like, well, let me talk to my wife. Uh, let me see what she thinks. I don't know if I could buy that. Uh, whatever, I got to ask her for permission. And so, and it's even more, uh, Chris, I'm sure you know that when you have kids, it's like, it, they call them golden handcuffs. These are great things, but they are, they are, they, they limit your ability and your freedom. Mm. But when you're a young single, that's where it's crucial that we go and find some of these guys. They have time that they will never as mu- have as much time as they did in their young single years, post-parents, pre-marriage and kids. So why not invite them into your world? I would say these areas you can invite them are, I have four, would be your personal life, would be your hobbies. That's like the easiest place and the most fun place to probably have them join. Whatever you like to do for fun, just invite someone young to come do that with you. Start there. Uh, Two would be your family life. Might be one of the most uh, pivotal areas to invite a young generation who's coming from a broken and divorced, fatherless and passive home. And for them to just do dinner. Um, I once got to ask Tony Evans, who has raised unbelievable young leaders. Every single one of his kids are just doing an incredible work for God in different industries and areas. And I asked him, What's what would you attribute? What would you say attributes the most to your kids' faith that you did? And he he was at a table when he tapped the table and he said, The table is what did it. He said, I'm very intentional at the table at dinner time. That's where we meet who you're dating. That's where we meet your new friends. That's where we pray over missionary. Mm-hmm. That's where we talk about the real stuff going on in our family and in our lives. Um, that's where someone is going to share a little bit about uh, and pray for uh, what's going on. Like, it's just, it's like we, we do, and we, you can't miss the table. Like he said, even now with all of them living apart, different parts of the country, they say once a month, apparently they still fly into town to get around the table at least once a month and have like a long meal together. And so it's not that you have to be this special orator like Tony Evans or this expositor like Tony Evans. Because the irony is I thought he could have said all those things, but he would say, it was just, I was intentional with meals. And a great thing is I found everyone I know eats food. Like I've never met someone who does it. And so just do a meal and invite someone. That's family life, work life, and church life would be third and fourth. Uh, some of you guys' jobs uh, will allow you to potentially bring someone younger, depending mm-hmm. on it. Some of you, it won't, and that's fine. And then some of you, maybe it's church life. That could be to serve with you on a Sunday I would especially say if you do missions to bring them on a mission trip with you, uh, things just happen on mission trips. Bonds are made that are yeah. bigger and greater than almost anything I've seen in the church life um, and exposure to the heart of God, the people of God in other nations, the lostness of our world. Um, but yeah, those areas, personal life, family life, work life, church life. 
who are you bringing in? It's not as hard as we try to make it. Really um, just uh, let them join your world. That's really good. Hey, we're talking, we're talking to Grant Skeldon about discipleship and about the next generation. And if you have any questions, feel free to drop them in the chat and we'll try to respond to those uh, as we as we continue the conversation. I'd, li- I'd like to go ahead and pivot a little bit if we could. I'm not supposed to say the word pivot anymore, but I guess people still use that word. Uh, but let's go ahead and transition and talk a little bit about how all of this um, focus on discipleship and relates to generosity and stewardship and giving. Because you and I have had this conversation before. If I had a dollar for every time a pastor said to me something like, what is wrong with these young people? They don't understand giving. They don't like to give here at the church or they don't seem to get it. Uh, I hear that a lot. And yeah. I, wonder, I wonder what your thoughts are about how this idea of discipleship uniquely with the next generation how does that kind of how does that impact the way we talk about generosity and stewardship and giving and using your money and investing your money in the kingdom and do you have any thoughts about how we can be more um, effective in discipling the next generation in this area? Yeah, um, I would say. Well, again, kind of going back to the beginning of the conversation is our, the, the, at least especially millennials pursued passion and purpose over provision. And so I always want to acknowledge uh, two things is we get the luxury to pursue uh, our passion and purpose because of uh, the sacrifice and the labor and the persistence of generations before us that chose jobs often fathers chose jobs that they absolutely hated, just did not get life out of. Uh, to do for decades because it provided uh, a better life for their kids and their families, put food on the table and provided just way better platform and uh, launching pad for their mm-hmm. kids. And so um, I always say like to young people, you know, we, we, we think it's like the right way to go is to pursue passion and purpose. And our parents chose the wrong, like greedy, uh, wrong way of choosing just provision. But I was like, if you were coming out of the great depression, uh, you didn't get the luxury to choose your passion and your purpose. You just had to do whatever job uh, paid the bills uh, mm-hmm. and, and let your, your family uh, survive, not even really thrive in that time. Um, and so that's a generation that was like coming out of that in a lot of ways and uh, seeing the impact of not having the finances. And so uh, that'd be one, but two, I was like, also young people, like you got to realize uh, we might be pursuing our passion and pursuing our purpose, but most of y'all are absolutely broke. Um, and so most of them are like poor, but they got their passion and their purpose. And so it's not either, or it truly is both. And, uh, but on a broader level of just talking about like even generosity is, I think, uh, like you mentioned, almost every problem in the church can be solved through discipleship. Uh, I think a lot of young people know how to just deal with finances at all. Like how do you even look at finances, uh, for even like the basics in life, uh, college just does not teach, um, and, and parents just uh, maybe are not as intentional or it just needs to, I don't know what this, I don't know if the, I, I, I don't ever almost like to say the government needs to fix this. Um, but I mean, you could tell me, Chris, but I just, I just don't feel like parents have, these are the conversations we need to have with you that prepare you for life that we just know aren't going to happen in school. And we don't want you to learn from the world or just never learn until you hit the wall of like not knowing how to do your taxes or not knowing how to, put together a budget or not knowing like how to stay out of debt. 
Um, and so I, I think it's a little broader. Uh, at one church I like that's in Dallas, uh, that's called Shoreline, that I just, I really like their approaches. Um, when you become a member, uh, they see membership as more than just being someone who's regularly going to join the church or give to a church. They see it as like, you're joining a community and we have high standards to be a part of this community. And uh, from what I've been told, they actually ask you about your spiritual plan for your life, your um, financial plan for your life. And I think it was your um, physical plan for your life. And Mm -hmm. so they guide you in those things. So it's like, Hey, what do you like? What's your plan? Do you have a plan physically for your life right now? Um, Working out, eating healthy. Cause we want to make sure uh, that, that, yeah, if the, the healthier you are physically has, it does intermingle with your spiritual walk and your discipline and all that, it bleeds into everything. Uh, lastly, I mean, I mean, so it, as well as your, your spiritual walk, I mean, do you have a plan for getting in the word? Do you have a plan for prayer? Do you, some people just like, I don't even know what it looks like to fast or what it looks like to pray. And so they, they try to intervene and help and guide uh, people that are becoming members of the church. But lastly, it's like finances. It's not just giving. They say, we just want you to have, do you have a plan mm-hmm. for your money? Like, do you know how much is coming in? Do you have a budget? What are you saving? And in that, they get to have the conversation around giving and generosity. And so I was like, that's brilliant is they're truly discipling them in areas where parents kind of probably should have. Um, but if they didn't, just in case the church is coming in and saying like, Hey, we want to help you in these areas. And while guiding you in what you do with your finances, just so you can make it and save, um, we also can't help but talk mm-hmm. about um, being generous towards the church and generous towards the things of God. Yeah, I think that's really smart. Uh, and I, I think one of the missing pieces is, I think, a pa- I think a pastor thinks that it's part of their job to teach people how to read the Bible. Or a pastor mm-hmm. thinks it's part of their job to teach people how to pray or share their faith, right? So if they're doing any discipling, they're probably focusing on those areas. But I just feel like we think that finances is somehow secular or not spiritual. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, I didn't go into ministry to teach people how to write a budget. You know, that's somebody else's job. The problem with that is that Jesus said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You can't serve two masters. You, you can't serve both God and money. Apparently, Jesus thought that stewardship and generosity were spiritual issues. And so mm-hmm. I, I think you're really right about the fact that we need a, our discipleship strategy needs to include discipling people in what the, what, what the Bible says about generosity and stewardship and giving yeah. and managing your money. And, and those things are going to, you know, imagine these young, these young, super talented um, leaders that you're getting to work with all the time the ones that are free to say yes to whatever it is that Jesus might want them to do are the ones that have, have made some wise decisions about yeah, how they good. spend their money, right? Because yeah, if they're sure. in bondage, they're in debt up to their eyeballs, then it really does limit their ability to say yes, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. I, um, yeah, that's uh, an area where I wish that, yeah, I mean, honestly, I in my own life, I, me and Cheyenne are going to talk about like finances. This is our first probably like long conversation. It's on the calendar. We got to talk about what's our plan for Good. money. Cause even that of like, okay, I make this much and now you make this much. And now it's so funny. Uh, 
uh, Eric Swanson uh, told me, he's like, it's going to be so crazy because you're going to be like, you made this much. And now you think she makes this much. So you guys should make so much money. It's like somehow, and you guys are both getting paid more than you used to two, three years ago. And you'll find yourself still not having enough money. And uh, so we're just, we're going to talk through, yeah, talk through that. And I, I, um, yeah, I don't know. You know, it's crazy, Chris. My dad's an accountant and I still, he never like sat me down to talk about it. I, I have tried to talk to him recently and he can help. It's just, there's just not as much intentionality around that. And the the problem is even you talking about, we see it as like, that's a secular conversation is uh, even how we have to almost unlearn that. And I felt like I've had to unlearn that making money isn't bad either. Uh, there's so many things around money that because we don't talk about it, uh, we, if I, I often say, if, like, if the church doesn't disciple, the the world gladly will volunteer to do the discipleship for us. Uh, but we will continue to see a, a worse and worse uh, byproduct of our lack of discipleship. Yeah, and it really, I mean, I just think it was clearly part of Jesus's discipleship strategy with his disciples. I think it's eleven of the eleven of the parables are about money and possessions. You know, yeah. he he really focused on that. The you read the, the Sermon on the Mount, there's a significant chunk of it that is about how do you think about how your life is provided for and how you sort of deal with those day-to-day things that, you know, a typical Galilean sort of person was, they were thinking about, how am I going to feed my family? And Jesus spoke to those issues pretty significantly. Um, yeah. We got a question in the chat box, which I think is interesting. And I, because I hear this, uh, I hear this too. The question is this, when it comes to finances, do you find that younger people are more engaged with parachurch ministries than their local churches? And is, and I'll paraphrase on behalf of this person, is it because they're more cause-oriented than institution-oriented? Um, well, well, just talk about that. Do you think that there, is there some truth to that, that younger people are more committed to parachurch than the local church? And if so, what's going on there and what do we do about it? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I think I remember seeing a study. I, I'm just going to say it was more cause I don't know the numbers exactly. I remember seeing a study saying that I swear it was around 70 ish percent of young people do give each year to something uh, that's parachurch or nonprofit. Uh, and so I'm sure giving is up uh, how much money is I'm not sure, but at least the fact that they did feel compelled to give uh, I, I know me and you, Chris, have off, on, offline talked about this quite a bit, but I strongly, as someone who's been in nonprofit ministry and I'll never worked for a church, but love the church, committed to the church. I think the church is the hope of the world and the movement. Like I, the, I was a teaching pastor for a church for a short time and the weight of teaching to a congregation compared to the, the weight of teaching to pastors, even like huge conferences or tons of CEOs far bigger way to speak to a congregation to me. I just feel a spiritual weight that I didn't feel when I speak at conferences, uh, even if they were bigger or flashier. Um, and so I, I just think, yeah, I'm, it's the hope of the world. I, my, my work will be around for a little bit, but if it's not around in 20 years, I would not be shocked. Uh, but if the church will be alive and well uh, somewhere in the world until Jesus comes back. And so I say all that to say, it's sad to me though, that um from seeing the nonprofit world and seeing the church world working closely in both, um, I've always wondered and wished if and thought if I was a pastor, I would ask for advice from nonprofit leaders on how to raise money. Because mm-hmm. I think you should do both approaches in the sense of 
uh, nonprofit. So churches raise money because people feel an obligation to give because of scripture. And uh, they often leverage that uh, obligation. Uh, and, and if you're wise and you know the, the word, well, it's kind of like, it's not something you have to do. It's something you get to do. Um, but we definitely, t- I think, harp on in the church a lot of like, this is still something we have to do. And then we use language about how you get to do it. While in the nonprofit world, what I found is like, no one feels obligated to give towards a nonprofit. They don't have to, like, they will get into heaven. And, I mean, I guess technically you've, either way, you still get into heaven. It's just yeah. like, there's just no obligation. Uh, there's not like a spiritual biblical obligation. It's a, it truly is a, I, my heart is being touched. And so I really want to give. And I think that um, that really resonates with young people. And I just think in all people, but especially with young people is it is a cause or into generation. And the beautiful thing is, is the church lacking of cause? Like the church is, I think the most cause oriented organization that ever has been and will be. And so it's not like, man, we're competing against true causes. <laughs> like we're the, we're the only cause that will permanently change people's life and still be here in hundred years. I, 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 when I used to think of what's a group that got young people, it was like the first big one to get, really get young people and millions of them was that Coney 2012 uh, uh, I organization. That. Yep. I mean, that video had millions, national news, Barack Obama addressed it. Uh, they got, I knew so many kids in my generation that bought the, literally bought the t-shirt, like not figuratively bought the t-shirt, literally bought the t-shirt, bought the posters. And the plan was to hang them up all over the nation and make Coney famous. But the leader of the organization had a mental breakdown Um the organization in, ended up having some scandal even later to this point. I think it's not even in America. There's a couple branches in other countries, but by and large, that organization is, does not exist at this point. And it's not even been 10 years um, since yeah. then. And so uh, these causes are good. I just think uh, you are a cause. Um, you're a part of the greatest cause that ever will be and is, but we do have to do a better job of sharing the impact of what we're doing as a church. Like, I mean, story is huge. I would, I would be telling stories almost every time I'd be bringing people on stage one. Cause it just gets them to be confident in sharing their story. And two, uh, I don't think it has to happen every Sunday when we do the offering message or anything. I not met, not like message with a little, like one or two minutes or three minutes that we talk about giving, but I would be, I mean, if you're, it's IJM, for example, um, I actually will use this example for Gabe and Gabe Lyons, my boss. I told Gabe when I joined uh, Q Ideas, I said, bro, Gabe, I am young, I am Mexican, and I'm getting all these young, diverse guys together. But the thing is, and that's great because everyone's trying to hit diversity and everyone's trying to hit young people. I'm killing it in those two areas. But you know what I don't have is I don't have credibility. I don't have a college degree. I don't have, I haven't been around as long. Q Gabe and, and Q has been around for a long time. I was like, together, I was like, I want to be like IJM because in Dallas, one of my donors brought me to the IJM uh, retreat or sorry, it wasn't a retreat. It was a fundraiser. Mm-hmm. Apparently they raised the most money at this fundraiser of any of the fundraisers they do in other cities. And what Gary Hogan, he has the credibility. They've been around a long time. He knows the stats and the numbers. He's trustworthy, which that's what the old people, they're going to check their boxes. And then, um, then there's gotta be some emotion and there's gotta be some passion and there's gotta be some like, man, I just didn't get into join something incredible. But what he does is 80% of it, he's sharing, he's talking, he's showing that what we're doing, what we've done, the stats, all that. And at the very end, I said, Gabe, they bring out, they'll do a video and they'll show this girl. There was a girl from like Thailand. 
Her story is incredible. She's a minority young girl and she's been trafficked and she's been saved. And now she's helping save other girls. And then better than that is at the end of the video, they open the curtain and say, and this girl is with us right here in Dallas today. And she shares for a minute or two. I was like, that's the game changer. He did all that. But when she came out, they're like, take my money, please. And I said, I want to be that little girl for you ideas. Like, let me be the, I will bring up leaders to tell the story. And my point is, is like the church has story after story, after story, after story, after story. And I think that's what young people just want to see. But too often we just keep almost, I feel like seven out of 10 times when I hear someone come up because we're going into the offering there, they just talk about the biblical responsibility, how, what we get out of it. That's, and that's great. We kind of already at this point know that. Um, I would say, show us what the church is doing with their money and more people will want to join that. that yeah, class. I think it's really smart. I, I don't, you know, in, in our work at Elevate Group as we're coaching pastors, we're trying to encourage them that you are, like you said, you have the greatest cause ever. You're, you know, you're, you're, this is the church. But when we get, if we get in our mind that, you know, the people in my church should be giving and they should be giving to us. And as a result, we don't feel like we have to disciple them in that area or motivate them in that area or inspire them, as you've described, by telling stories. I think we're going to miss it. Um, yeah. You know, uh, if you and, and I'll tell you another thing, sometimes and it doesn't just happen with young millennials, it will happen with older people, too. They'll give a large gift to a, to a ministry outside of the church. And that is a real test for a pastor yeah. because that pastor's response to that should be, man what in the world is God doing in your heart that would cause you to give that gift to IJM or to crew or whatever it might be. But instead, sometimes if we're honest as pastors in our heart, what we're really thinking is, man, I wish they had given that to me. How come they didn't give it yeah. to us? Yeah, that's true. And that's a huge miss, right? Yeah. You know, Chris, honestly, I'd never thought of that, that I bet pastors uh, have to do. I know as nonprofit leaders, when I was new, I, I would teach I'd see some donors give so much money to organizations that I feel like squandered it. And I'd be like, God, I don't get it. Like why we're like working off a shoestring budget. And I think doing incredible things. Uh, but I think where God got me and I would say that encourage the pastor too, is uh, I think he had to keep it telling me like he has cattle on a thousand hills. Like me, even for me, I'm a connector. That's probably my greatest gift to the kingdom is just connecting people. And I've had to grow and now even like, like, I, I just, there's a young Gen Z kid who's going to be, I feel like the, the new, the next guy in a lot of ways. And I was introducing him to some key pastors last week in Dallas, but I also introduced him to one of my biggest donors. And I think the old me would have been like, dude, keep that guy away from your biggest donor. But I found, especially people with high net worth capacity. I mean, they're, they're not going to stop giving to you. It's because they start giving to them. And most of the time, I've never seen that happen. However, I bet sometimes that does happen. But I found the more I'm open-handed with that, the more God trusts me with more people. And there's so many more other people with the money that have a heart for the kingdom and the things you're doing. And so, like, uh, I haven't found that. I actually feel like the, the scarcity mindset that we can have as Christian leaders is probably one of the most subtle secret killers to the, totally. the kingdom advancing on so many levels um, in our okay. cities in the nation. And so, uh, yeah, just knowing, I mean, God has a cattle on a thousand hills. He's got kids all over the kingdom Amen. that have tons of resources and and they're not even just someone you got to beg to give. They're actually praying thoughtfully mm-hmm. towards God to connect me to what you want me to give to. And so, uh, the more I think our heart is invested in him 
and truly trust him with the resources, I, th- I think we'll be good. Last quick little tip too is similar to nonprofits is I think uh, the vision trips, maybe for young people specifically, for nonprofit leaders, uh, sometimes we have to take some of our high net worth donors, especially if you do international stuff, to go and see like, hey, we're going to do a small trip with 10 of you guys and the leader, the founder. This might just be the mission pastor or someone else on staff, but who are some of the young families or young individuals that have some finances that they were like, we want to take a strategic trip with you guys. Um, and this is part, part, like, we left to legitimately see it as a discipleship trip. Um, part of it is finances, but part of it is like, you guys should know what God's doing in other parts of the world. And we want also, we want you to see what God's doing even through us, through the parts of the world so that they can be advocates when they come back home to their generation. Also to say like, Hey, when they talk about giving, and they see those stories. I've been there and it's incredible. Like that's a, that's a per- small percentage of what truly is happening in that part of the world. Um, or locally, if it's a domestic trip, right. like we're going to go to this part of uh, this nonprofit or this local place where we've been building a school or building a, whatever it may be that we're doing, but let them, let them take a, a immersive, immersive trip to, to those places strategically for young leaders as a discipleship trip to be um, to be moved themselves and see as well as uh, advocates when they come back. You know, I think another really smart thing that you just uh, alluded to is this problem that we sometimes have in the church. If we're going to think about, Hey, who are my key givers and how do I engage them and really get them involved and all of that? I think we skip over. I think we skip over the next generation when we're putting that list together, we don't yeah, even you know, yeah. think about them. And, you know, in some of our churches, you've got, you've got, 30 somethings or even younger. These, these, these are young professionals that have, they've got a great job. They've got some, um, they've got the ability to give at a level that is way, way beyond what you might expect, but we don't think of them in that category. So we don't even include them in that. And I think that's a real miss. And, 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 and many of them, if they're not there now, they will be one day. And so discipling them, as you just described, and really letting them see what it is that we're doing as a church is going to make a, it's going to make a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think even if it's the long game, that's, that's what we're in kind of like the goal isn't just to get them to come to our church and then just stay here for the rest of their life is like, we are discipling them for, if it's an experience that doesn't pay off till seven years later, when they are making better money, you are the person that saw something in them before they had everyone else reaching out. It's a big deal. I think, uh, I think all of us have, uh, Chris, I'm sure you have like, for me, I, I think of, there's guys who disciple me now and they're guys that everyone's like, man, I would love to get discipled by that person or love to have relationships with that leader. Like look up to him, even Gabe to be like here. The second Christian book I ever read when I was 16 years old was unchristian. Ironically, like where I ended up with Gabe who wrote a book on the next generation who gathers all these leaders. I, I mean, we're so similar in so many ways, but uh, I think of the guys before they were really big deal guys that were discipling me. And there's two or three I can think of when I was 16, 17, 18, 19, no one really knew who I was. And those guys could call me today, 10 years later and say, Hey, I need you to come fly down here and do this for me. Or I need you to go say something about this. Or can you give me an endorsement for this or whatever? I will run through a wall for those people. Like I would, they almost, I owe them more. Like, of course, some people want to be a part of what I'm doing now when people are seeing it, but like the people who gave and invested when no one else. And so that's, I think, it's uh, it's just wise to to not overlook them uh, now. Plus, uh, I would say a lot of for me the fundraising and the people that have gotten on board were the parents of the kids that I was impactful on their lives. And so it's like the kids are saying, "Mom, Dad, I'm telling you." And and as someone who doesn't have a kid but ministers to a lot of parents, 
uh, it just seems like when you have kids, there are a few things you pray for more than for your kids to come to a deep knowledge and relationship with Jesus Christ. And there's that's first, but if you can get them to be like on fire for him, oh, it's like so life-giving. And so for you to be a part of that in their kid's life, like I've just seen parents start. I had a family yesterday, actually, a big top five person in uh, General Motors, and they just sent money. And I have never asked them. I've wanted them to give, um, but their kids have been pretty, pretty big part of it. This is the most George Mueller experience because I've been cool. tr- I've tried that model so much and it's still not worked for me where it's like, I'm just not going to ask and I just want people to come to me and I'm just going to trust you, God. That was the first time I was like, hey, what's your address? We want to send you money. Um, and I know their kids were really highly impacted by stuff that we were doing a few years ago. And so, yeah, um, yeah I would, I would encourage, um, I would encourage two reasons why the next generation should not be overlooked in giving. I'll tell you what, George Mueller's great, but it's a hard model to follow when it comes it to is. fundraising. It you is. know, I mean, God it can is. do whatever He wants. But we yeah. have plenty of examples in the Scripture of people doing what I what I what I like to call the ministry of asking, which is yeah. just inviting people to give and and telling them why and and asking them to give. And I think in the church we need to do the ministry of asking, and it's every it's nice every now and then when somebody knocks on the door and hands you a check. That's a that's yeah, a, I agree. Yeah. Well, Grant, I really appreciate your taking time to talk to us. I think the big idea that I always, I think the big idea I always get when I talk with you is we just, and it, and it doesn't even just apply to, to, to next generation. It's all of us. We just need to remember that, that the work of the church is to make disciples. It's the, right. Let's make, as you yeah. like to say, make the, make the, the great commission great again. Or the yeah, make the commission great, great again. again. Yeah, I love yeah. that, right? And that's the big idea, and I think it 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 um, it makes all the difference in every area of ministry, and and in the area that I work in, the whole idea of helping churches with generosity and stewardship and giving—that's a discipleship issue. And so, I think you you know you just point that out so well, and I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Thankful for you, Chris. Appreciate Thanks, you bye. seriously. All right, listen, if you guys want to reach Grant Skeldon or connect with him, you can find him at grantskeldon.com. That's the best way to connect with him. If we can do anything for you at Elevate Group, it's elevategroup.us. We'd be happy to help you if we can. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks for our second installment in this uh, Elevating Generosity podcast. Thanks for joining us today, everybody. Appreciate it. And thanks, Grant, for joining us, bro.